As COVID-19 cases spike in the D.C. region, hospitals are filling up in Maryland, and a growing number of parents are getting calls. Hello. Due to the stark rise in COVID-19 cases throughout our school system, all students will transition to virtual learning. While questions still remain about Omicron, it's clear this new and evasive variant is affecting people's lives in ways we haven't seen in months. Prince George's County Public Schools went virtual on Friday. Kids will be back in the classroom by mid-January, but parents and teachers are having to scramble to adjust. This week, I talked to WTOP's Kate Ryan about why the school system decided to shut down its buildings before and after the Christmas break, and whether other school systems will do the same. Kate also shares her latest reporting on Maryland hospitals, which are now limited to critical care as beds fill up with COVID patients. So Kate, this past week, things really started to happen as far as Omicron is concerned. People's lives were affected, and one of the largest ways was through schools. We saw the trickling of sports cancellations and some schools being put to virtual, and then boom, Prince George's County is going all virtual for the remainder of this month and into January. So to start, tell us you know, what happened and why Prince George's made this move to go all virtual. Everyone was seeing the numbers tick upwards, and then suddenly it was like a snowball effect. They weren't just ticking upwards. There was an avalanche of COVID positivity cases reported through the schools. And the interesting thing is here, keep in mind, we do not have individual cases listed on the State Department of Health website, right, because of the outage there. So it's been up to the schools are kind of doing this. They're seeing the cases come into them. And they're on the front lines, if you will, of, okay, how fast is this transmissibility accelerating? And really, it hit the gas in Prince George's County. So you went from the three schools that had announced, hey, we're going to go a virtual in the lead up up to the Christmas break. They weren't saying they were going to continue beyond that. And now late Friday, Friday afternoon, we got the word from Prince George's County Schools that not only are they going to go virtual across the system right up until the holiday break, so Monday, December 20th through December 23rd, and then they'll have winter break, but then they're going to stay virtual until Friday, January 14th, so kids will not be back in the buildings until Tuesday, January 18th, the Tuesday after the Martin Luther King holiday weekend. Right. And let's drive down into the specifics of why these school officials in Prince George's County are you know, deciding to make this huge decision where I'm sure parents, teachers are going to have to make a lot of changes in this next month. Was it just that big case rate? Was it just outbreaks spreading across the schools? Uh, what reasons did they give? It wasn't just the number of kids going into quarantine. And we don't have specific numbers coming out of Prince George's. When they made this announcement, they didn't give us data that says this is precisely why. But anecdotally, and I've heard from several teachers that at my school, X amount of teachers are out as well. So it wasn't just that the kids are having to quarantine, but an increasing number of teachers were reporting sick because they were, in fact, coming down with COVID. So that compromised. And I think I'm going to refer back to the announcement from Prince George's County School CEO, Dr. Monica Goldson. She said, educators, administrators, and support staff must be able to deliver in-person instruction in conditions that prioritize their own health. Well, she said, the increased positivity rates have significantly challenged the ability to do so. So bottom line, they were unable to deliver the education that they need to 
because they simply don't have the bodies in the building due to this rapidly expanding COVID case rate. And we've been here before, you know, this pandemic is now edging into its third year, you know, been here for two years, and we've seen schools go back to virtual. So if you can take us back, how does this kind of compare to the last time, you know, schools went virtual? Does this seem temporary and it's really only going to go into January and extend past that? Or are there fears that, you know, the rest of the semester is just going to be, you know, from home? I can tell you that at the state level in particular, the state superintendent, Dr. Mohamed Chaudhry, has said, absolutely, I do not want to go back to that. And even teachers who are exhausted will tell you the virtual learning delivery system just is not the same as being in the classroom. I think everyone would agree on that. I will say this. I spoke to Dr. Donna Christie. She is the Prince George's County Educators Association president, the union, teachers union. And she said what the teachers had been pushing for was this break after they come back from winter break, give them two more weeks of virtual instruction to quote, catch their breath. So to give a little cooling off period to see if they can slow the spread a little bit. I think that's what you're going to see schools banking on that maybe they can help put the brakes on the acceleration of this disease. And then as needed, come back into the classroom. If they have to put the brakes on again, they can do that rather than say we're out until June. No one wants to do that. No one, not the kids, not the teachers, and certainly not the parents. So what I'm hearing is we're not back to March 2020 school closures. The difference here is two years ago, we were flying blind. We didn't know what this thing was capable of and how far it would go. Now we understand how it behaves and we have tools to fight it that include number one, the vaccine. And we're hearing that at every level, state officials, local health officials, educators like Dr. Goldson are saying, get yourself vaccinated. So we have that tool in the toolbox, plus masks and social distancing. The interesting thing is we are not yet seeing a return in DC or in Maryland statewide to a mask mandate. We haven't seen that come back. It's gonna be interesting to see what happens there. But at least I think people know, okay, we know how to fight this. That's one of the big differences. And zooming out from Prince George's County Public School System, you know, what are other counties adjacent or, you know, even a couple counties away? Are they following suit or are they taking a wait and see approach as far as, you know, going back to virtual learning during this expected Omicron surge? Not yet. At least three, Fairfax County, Montgomery County and Charles County got in touch with us to say we are keeping a very close eye on this. We are seeing the same thing, a jump in the case rates, but they're just not ready to go virtual. However, In the Montgomery County announcement, there was a blurb about activities, winter activities, extracurriculars, non-athletic extracurriculars are fully suspended. Athletic events are now down to, if there are three positive cases on a team, on a given team, they will have to pause for a two-week period. That's new before it was five. So we're down to, okay, three cases on a team, then you're going to be suspended for two weeks to kind of give people breathing room to see how this is behaving. I would expect that in the coming days, Montgomery County may consider expanding. Um, we're, again, we're going to have to wait and see. And within hours of Prince George's County really notifying students, parents, and teachers that they're going to go back to virtual learning, the CDC came out with an advisory really recommending a test-to-stay approach over sending kids back to virtual learning. Have state officials weighed in on this at all and whether they're going to really follow the CDC advisory? 
you raise a very good point. And our colleague on our web team here, Scott Gelman, noted that in Fairfax County, there is discussion of the test to stay program. What form that will take, how large it will be, we don't know. I know in Montgomery County, they are still piloting it. They're going school by school. There had been very encouraging signs. I know Dr. Stoddard, the assistant CAO for the county, was very gung-ho on this as a great tool to be able to tell what's going on. And you are hearing more and more people saying that getting tested is a wonderful tool to be able to give you a, a heads up on what you're facing. And the, that's interesting too, because of, again, the Omicron variant that we're seeing seems to have lighter symptoms. People are reporting, I don't feel symptomatic and oops, I turned up positive. So that, that's something I would expect to see more schools moving to that as they're able. I wouldn't be surprised. And Kate, let's now shift to another big story you've been covering this week, hospitalizations. Governor Larry Hogan came out with an Omicron plan that really seeks to address the rising number of hospitalizations in Maryland. Can you tell us what hospitals are doing and how they're doing? So this is the part that is, in fact, really quite alarming. Staffed hospital beds. Think of those in terms of the ones where nurses have to come and take care of you in your hospital bed are at 94% capacity across the state, 94%. The total COVID-19 patients have increased by more than 100%. They've more than doubled in the past month. The statewide average of the 94% of beds that are full, 16% of those are COVID cases, okay? So the bottom line is the hospitals, again, are cutting any non-emergency medical procedures that require overnight stays those are stopping. Once they hit 1,500, you're going to see that further reduce. Robert Atlas, the president and CEO of the Maryland Hospital Association, is urging people to stay away from the hospital for emergency care unless it's life-threatening. So if you need to see a doctor, get to your doctor in person, go to telehealth, and if you need immediate care, go to your local urgent care center. Get vaccinated, get boosted, wear masks, keep socially distancing, and wash your hands. And they know that everyone's intent on Christmas travel, right? A lot of us were going, finally, we can see far-flung family after two years. Well, I, I personally know some people who've had to put those plans on hold because, oops, someone tested positive. So getting yourself tested is being encouraged as well. Because again, a lot of us could be walking around with what we think are mild cold symptoms and, oops, it's, it's COVID. So the hospitals are taking this very, very seriously. And the governor has said, you know, pandemic procedures will have to be put in place if we hit that 1500 level, which I'm almost certain we will quite soon. You know, the news industry, we don't normally sit here and project. I think that's going to happen, but we've seen this pattern before, you know, it's a movie we've seen before. And I think people would be reasonable to expect that, that we're going to see further reduction in hospital beds available for anything but the most critical cases right now. You know, within the past two years, we've seen these things before. And, you know, a listener might be saying, man, schools are going back to virtual. Hospitals are stopping, you know, non-critical care. Are we destined for all of the awful things we saw, you know, previously? But are health officials kind of shaking their boots or do they think this is manageable, this current surge that we're about to go into? I think they're very concerned at the spread. But I, again, I think they feel confident in we have a lot of good tools at our disposal. Uh, We've seen the strength in particular that the boosters can offer. 
And keep in mind, the CDC just okayed the expanded recommendation of boosters for 16 years old and up. So if you've got a teenager in the house that hasn't gotten their booster, this is the time to do it. You know, I think this is the thing that gives people optimism when you see how it can really work. And I think a lot of us may know a lot of people too who have had COVID and recovered. And I don't want to minimize it because no one wants to say that, oh, it's just like the flu, but it's not what it was a year ago. It doesn't have that terror, you know, that ability to terrorize people. It's anxiety producing and it is serious and people should not take it lightly. You shouldn't treat it like a cold. But again, I think we're in a different space. And I think with more people pulling together, I think there's a reason for optimism that we keep hearing health officials say. I will say the one area of alarm is hospitals are telling us their staff are exhausted. They've been at it, slogging away. While you and I may have been able to put our masks away, depending on what jurisdiction we're in, they have not. And they are constantly dealing with an influx. And this is round two for them. And they're tired. So that's why I think we're hearing from so many officials, again, from Governor Hogan to local health officials, to county executives, to teachers, do your part, get yourself vaccinated and do all those safety protocols so we can get through this hopefully faster. We now turn to an expert, Dr. Claire Stanley, Associate Research Professor of Public Health within the Georgetown University Center for Global Health Science and Security. So Dr. Stanley, this past week, there was a ton of developments on the pandemic front. I think a lot of people are dealing with emotions and feelings they have felt, you know, in in the year past when this really started before vaccines and such. So to start off, let's really just cover our bases on Omicron's transmissibility, what we know about that, and also what we know about its virulence. This is all preliminary information, but I think we are starting to get a bit of a clearer picture on some of those factors. So it does appear that Omicron is more transmissible. They're trying to work out exactly what the mechanism might be for that. But data from the UK, for example, has just released December 17th, has suggested that there is both a higher risk of secondary infection from Omicron, so again, a higher sort of attack rate for for transmission. And they've also shown that there seems to be a greater rate of uh, household contact exposure compared to Delta from Omicron, again, suggesting there might be higher transmissibility. But um, the UK data is very clear on also saying that the epidemiology and, and the age groups and other factors associated with who's infected may also have a big impact given how relatively few cases there are at this point. They're growing rapidly, but the data are still definitely coming in. On the virulent side, very early days. Again, one of the challenges with estimating that has been that the places where we're seeing the most cases, where we have the most data, are either highly vaccinated populations in Western Europe or South Africa, where there was large amounts of, uh, as I say, naturally acquired immunity from previous exposure to other variants, lower rates of vaccination, but also a younger population, which might have some protective effects too. So again, a bit difficult to tell what sort of the, the natural virulence would be in an unvaccinated older population. But unfortunately, I think we're, we're going to find out pretty soon, given what's happening in terms of spread. Right. And uh, part of the infrastructure of any health system is, you know, how is this going to affect hospitals Um, with this differing uh, transmissibility, possibly higher transmissibility, possibly lower virulence? How is this going to shake out, you know, in the ICU beds and the hospitals? 
Yeah, great point. So I think there's been a lot of rhetoric around how vaccination has, quote unquote, decoupled cases from hospitalizations and deaths. And I think that's a slightly misleading word to use because, yes, it has greatly reduced the strength of the association, thankfully, between cases and hospitalizations. We can see, again, data from the UK where there has been a consistently high peak of cases, predominantly Delta, until the last few weeks. And Omicron is now rapidly replacing Delta um, as the source of those cases, but relatively slower increase in the number of hospitalizations. So it's great that that association is less tight now, but there is still an association. We know that as cases go up, in part because of waning immunity or, or lack of robust immune response, especially in older people, even if they're double vaccinated, and then critically due to the proportion of the population who choose to be unvaccinated, let alone children, there's going to be a lot of cases. And when there's a lot of cases, you're going to get some proportion of more severe ones. Hopefully a smaller proportion again than in previous waves, thanks to all those tools we have at our disposal, but some small proportion nonetheless. At the beginning of the pandemic, I know death rates were really kind of seen as a number that would define public health measures and really situate this virus in ones we had seen, you know, before its novelty. Have vaccinations and these new tools we have really changed the death rate or are we still kind of dealing with the same death risk, in other words? I think it definitely has changed the game. I mean, it certainly has reduced the severity of the virus in general. Um, we are still seeing people, of course, tragically die from this virus. It is still, it is, it is not stopping causing deaths, but the tools are effective, particularly vaccination. We are also seeing um, improvements in antivirals. We are seeing improvements in other aspects of case management. So I think there's a lot that has been done already just in the last 18 months or so to reduce that risk of death from the virus. And I think it's also important to note that throughout the pandemic, that risk of death has not been the same in all segments of the population. We know that there's risk factors that are associated with more severe outcomes, some of which we don't know also. There may be underlying genetic factors that contribute. There may be other, um, we know there's exposure factors based on, on likelihood of being exposed to the disease. And so I think it's important just to note that that one single number can't necessarily tell you everything you need to know about the, the risk of severe outcomes in general. Right. And, you know, the interplay between personal and community risk has been one that has defined public opinion, public health, um, and politics. And so what's really at risk here for the person, but also for the community as we enter this new stage, this new era of the pandemic with Omicron? What's really at stake here? Yeah, I think that's really the crux of, of so much of what we've had to battle with during this pandemic. So I think the good news is that with Omicron, based on all the data we're seeing so far, if you as an individual are double vaccinated, ideally boosted, particularly if you're under 65 and, and don't have underlying medical conditions, your personal level of risk from Omicron is very, very, very low. However, we do know that there is still a risk of breakthrough infection, even if you're triple vaccinated and young, you will luckily not experience most likely severe disease, but you can still transmit that the virus to others. And that's where the societal impact comes in, both in terms of people who cannot for medical reasons be vaccinated, but also those who choose not to be, children who cannot yet be vaccinated, and the elderly whose immune protection may wane more rapidly than, than other people. And that's where I think we, we do worry about the increased transmissibility of Omicron, creating a system where either because of isolation requirements, we're seeing reductions in workforce, be it even medical workers, certainly in the UK, they're seeing a lot of medical workers who are forced to stay home and isolate, which is causing personnel reductions in critical uh, care units. Similarly, the fact that when your hospital beds are full, that really reduces the ability of the health system to support other types of health interventions. And again, Many countries in the world have seen delays in elective services. 
have seen challenges with ambulance availability uh, to deal with other urgent acute issues like heart attacks or strokes. And that's going to build up and create huge issues for the health system. And so I think we as individuals can be confident potentially in our own protection, particularly again, if we are double vaccinated or even triple vaccinated, but you know, none of us can be protected if we fall over, break a leg and, and can't get about the hospital or can't get a surgeon to reset our leg because they're out sick, isolating or because they've been a potential exposure. So I think that's the, the broader societal impact that we have to be worried about in which I think really, to me at least, hits home that, that a pandemic is never an individual choice issue. It's always going to be about the, the community and the society at large. Um, but, but I think, you know, it's also important to sometimes sit and reflect on where we are now compared to where we were two years ago. You know, the fact that we do have vaccines is a complete game changer. You know, I think through to the feeling of, of this time last year, you know, coming into the end of the year last year and thinking, you know, how are we going to get through this next wave? Okay, the, the vaccines look like they're coming out, but are they going to come out fast enough? And yes, okay, I think we all hoped that we wouldn't be here a year later. But in the same token, you know, we, we do have so many more tools now under our belts in terms of being able to attack this. So I don't know, I'm trying to stay on the optimistic side. I think that, you know, humans have a remarkable capacity for adaptation and for, for positive thinking, even under very difficult circumstances. So I hope that that sort of best in us can shine through. Over the weekend, two Charles County public schools said they were going virtual in the final days before Christmas break. Also this weekend, Montgomery County held a special Super Saturday Boosterama to get shots in the arms of shoppers at the Westfield Wheaton Mall. Here's County Executive Mark Elrich. They put out all 450 doses of vaccine. It was very successful. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Luke Garrett. Our cover art was created by cartoonist Audrey Garrett, and our music is courtesy of Loxby. Join me next Monday as the world recovers. <laughs>